So, let me ask you, what's been your favourite film? Shout them out, what's your favourite film? What was that? Sound of Music. Ooh, very cultured. What else have we got over here? Favourite films? Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Very apt. Very good, Kevin. Any others? The Good, the Bad. Would you choose someone who represents it? No, we better not do that, Ad. We could get you into trouble there. <laughs> Anybody else? Jack? Jurassic World. Oh. Is that your favourite as well, Joe? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen a film and you've really been waiting to see it and you see the trailer and it just sort of gets you going and you really want to see it? You've done, I can see John nodding his head. Or have you ever seen a trailer for a film and then thought, oh, I've got to watch that film? Have you ever done that? Thank you. One person. Excellent. Thanks, Rach. Well, a movie trailer gives you a peek into what's coming soon. It gives you some highlights of the film and often picks out a main theme. And this summer, we will be running a Galatians six-part miniseries, delving chapter by chapter into what Galatians has to say for us. So are you up for that? Yeah, Galatians in the summer. Um, and today I wanted to do a little bit of a Galatians trailer to whet your appetite. And like a good movie trailer, I do want to pull out the overall theme. So Galatians, the movie trailer. There are some things we need to know before we get to the theme. Like when we think about movies, we usually want to know what classification is it. And that way we'll know what sort of film we're letting ourselves in for and whether the kids can go or not. So the British Board of Film Classification gives it a rating. If it's a U, no problem, anybody can watch it. PG, then the parents need to be there and they need to be happy. Then there's films that use strong language and violence and uh, drugs and other sorts of things. And that will have an age classification depending on the extent of that content. Now, if the books of the Bible carried an age classification, I reckon Galatians would be an 18. In many ways, Galatians is the most colourful book of the New Testament. It's filled with vivid and vigorous language. And if you've read it, I'm sure that you were struck by its forcefulness. So that's why I give it an 18 classification. But when we think about a film, as well as classification, what we want to know is, what's the genre? Is it autobiographical? Is it a horror film, a comedy, a thriller? Maybe Pixar or Disney animation. So a bit of a shout out again. Let's ask, what sorts of genres of films do you like? Comedy? Action? Science fiction? Hmm. At the risk of damaging my image as a macho, testosterone-driven, blue-blooded male, don't laugh. <laughs> I love romantic comedies. <laughs> Can I? Oh dear, I've done it. I've lost all credibility now for the rest of the preach, haven't I? That's it. But I, I reckon you have to be secure in your masculinity to admit in public and on podcast 
that you love rom-coms. Although thinking about it, I don't think Vicky and I have been to the cinema to see a romantic comedy since the kids were born. It's, it's all Disney animations and that sort of stuff now. Um, but anyway, coming back to the main theme, Galatians. What genre is Galatians? Well, the genre of Galatians is an epistle. And if you don't know what an epistle means, it basically means a letter. And whereas the Gospels recount the stories of the events of Jesus' life through the eyes of the disciples, and they're really helpful because they tell us about the good news of Jesus uh, until his death and resurrection, well, the epistles, the letters, they help us understand how the early church was working out and living out its faith after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And we find Galatians in the New Testament. Now, I thought I ought to explain this to anyone not too familiar with the structure of the Bible. Um, maybe to do a little bit of digging deeper into some Bible teaching. Is that okay? Yeah, is that all right? So, the Holy Scripture for Christians, the Bible, is split into two parts. The Old Testament, that's the first half. And the New Testament is the second half. So, okay, so far so good? Not too bad. Um, the first five books of the Old Testament are called... Uh, the law or the Torah and they contain lots of rules and regulations such as you'll find the Ten Commandments there and people say that the Old Testament is a foreshadow or a foretaste of the New Testament all the books in the Old Testament somehow point to a single event in history and all the books in the New Testament flow from that event and that event is the coming Messiah or Christ. Now, the word Messiah and Christ is the same thing. They're just different words in different languages. So Messiah is Hebrew and Christ is Greek. But both words mean anointed one. The Messiah was the promised saviour of the Old Testament and the reality of Jesus in the New Testament. And just for the record... Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, okay? Christ was his messianic title. And it was only towards the end of his earthly life when Jesus asked Simon Peter, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's important, remember that. And Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now again, a little bit of teaching, digging a bit deeper. In Jesus' day, if you were the son of someone, you would often have the word Bar in front of your name. So in this passage, Jesus says, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Does that make sense? You tracking? Excellent. So if we take Jesus the Christ, in his day people might have called him Jesus bar Joseph because he was his earthly father was called Joseph, Joseph and Mary. However, Jesus really came from God and Jesus called God Abba and Abba means father or daddy. So you could say that Jesus, the son of God, was Jesus, son of Abba. 
Now, this is where it gets really interesting because just before Jesus is crucified, picture the scene, Pilate, who's the judge, asks, who should I release? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah? We have two people on trial, both called Jesus. Jesus Barabbas was the guilty criminal, the lawbreaker. But if we break his name down, his name, Bar-Abbas, means son of the father. So the criminal is the father's son. Then we have Jesus called Messiah, the Christ, who was the innocent son of God. He is also the son of the father, the son of Abba. We have two Jesus sons of the father one son jesus christ is innocent but as a gift of grace pays the price of the other he takes upon himself the penalty of law breaking that he didn't deserve freely given his own life on the cross so that the other son jesus barabbas the one who according to the law was guilty can go free just like us. How amazing is that? This is a beautiful picture of the eternal gospel of grace, the new covenant, the new testament. And I want you to keep that picture in mind as we look at law, freedom and grace in Galatians. So we went on a bit of a detour, but the Galatians, the genre, is an epistle or a letter in the New Testament. Another question that we might ask about a movie is, who's the scriptwriter? Now, Vicky and I love someone called Aaron Sorkin. We love his work. And we don't usually get drawn into TV series. And to be honest, I never take very much notice of scriptwriters. But we watched the first season of, uh, of a program called The West Wings, and we were just hooked. And we watched season after season after season. And we didn't know who the scriptwriter was. We just really enjoyed the style of the series and the way it was written. And have you ever been gutted when you get to the very last episode, at the very last season, and you really wanted to watch some more, but you know that no more have been written? Have you, have you ever been, yeah, lots of people nodding. Well, we felt that way. And it was at that stage when we watched the last episode of West Wing. We just didn't want it to end. And we thought, well, we'll find out who wrote it. And we found out it was Aaron Sorkin. And we went and searched for other things that he'd written. And he'd written something called The Newsroom. And it wasn't the same as The West Wing, but it was the same. It was, it was just as good. So if you've never watched The Newsroom or The West Wing, I commend them to you. They're very good. Um, but coming back to our Bible bit, who wrote Galatians? Who's the scriptwriter? Anybody can tell me? Brilliant. Of all of the epistles in the New Testament, the authorship is the least contested. Paul, it is almost certain, wrote Galatians. And let's find out a little bit about him. Let's find out about the scriptwriter. Paul, and that, that's a sort of might be how he looked, was originally known as Saul. Now, you've got to be careful here, because in the Bible, there are some people who've got the same name as each other, and you can get a bit confused. So there's a Saul in the Old Testament who was a king and then David uh, sort of um, succeeded him. That's not this Saul. This Saul's a different Saul in the New Testament. 
and Saul was a young religious man. He was devoted to God. He loved God. He was zealous for God. And like many religious leaders of his time, he knew the law of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, very well. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, he thought that Jesus' followers were heretics and blasphemers, and he went around persecuting them and getting them arrested, getting them tortured, getting them killed. Do you get the idea? Then on a trip to Damascus to persecute a church there, Saul had a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus. And as a result, he radically changed his mind and his thinking utterly turned around. And this is called repentance. When you change your mind, when your thinking changes around, and again, repentance and coming to Jesus is a beautiful picture of the gospel of grace. And as a result, Paul became the most important apostle in taking the good news of Jesus to non-Jews going on missionary trips and planting churches. And many of the letters that he wrote to those churches became the epistles of the New Testament. Okay, so everybody's still with me? Brilliant. The next question about a film might be, what's the backstory or what's the prequel? Because these days, when a movie series comes to an end, but the filmmakers still want to... If you say generously, tell us more about the story. If you look at it cynically, make more money out of us. But when they come to the end of a series, they often go and create some prequels and tell you what happened before. And so we might say, what's the backstory to Galatians? Well, Paul had just finished his first missionary trip. He'd been around planting churches. And after 18 months on the road, he received a report that the churches that he had started and that he planted in a place called Galatia. Now, Galatia's in modern-day Turkey, just so that you know. For those geographers amongst you, we're talking about Turkey. Had fallen into error. Now, a group of Jews uh, who were also Christians but had come from a similar tradition to Paul, Judaizers they're called, they gained influence in the Galatian churches. And what they wanted to do was make living under the law of Moses a requirement of the Christian faith. Now, Paul had a very close relationship with these churches in Galatia, and that helps to explain the extremely strong tone and language that he took with them right from the very beginning of the, let the letter. And the fact that he took the pen from the scribe and wrote the end of the letter himself in large letters gives us a clue of how important this was. For him, this was no minor issue. He called the Galatians deserters of Christ, people turning from the truth towards a gospel contrary to the one they'd received. So that's the backstory. There's a lot you've had to take in there, hasn't there? A lot to take in. Um, let's look at the plot. In a trailer, you usually end up knowing roughly what's going to happen in the story. So let's do that. But often filmmakers use a storyboard uh, that helps map out the plot. Uh, so how does Galatians look on a storyboard? Well, firstly, chapters 1 to 2, Paul gives his testimony about how he'd received an authentic gospel from Jesus. Paul then declares that Christ lives in him and directs and empowers him to live as Christ's ambassador and instrument. 
Chapters 3 to 5, Paul begins by declaring that salvation is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. It can't be obtained through keeping the law. He says the law is a tutor. It leads us to salvation in Jesus Christ. But no one could ever obey the law, the Ten Commandments. It's impossible. Every person has broken them. And therefore, we can only attain salvation through trusting our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 5 to 6, he teaches on the fruit of the Spirit. That good works can't save us, but a true follower of Jesus will have a desire to produce good fruit and to live a holy and righteous life in the eyes of God. He tells us to walk by the Spirit and not to carry out the desires of the flesh. That as Christians, we should be living the redeemed life. So that's the storyboard. That's the way the Galatians plot develops. And that's the thing that we'll be unpacking a little bit over summer. But what's the big idea? In a movie, there's usually a main theme. And as we've heard in Galatians, Paul is at his angriest. He's writing as a spiritual father to his spiritual children. He's risking the favour of those churches to make sure they're on the path of truth and not led into deception. You see, the Galatians had very quickly fallen away from the freedom of the gospel of grace. And they were seeking to be justified by the law. In contrast, Paul argued that justification came by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works in the law. And part of the problem that confronted the Galatians came from one of the arguments the Judaizers were making. These false teachers suggested that when you live by grace and when you live in freedom, it meant to live a lawless and a degenerate life. So in the final chapter of this letter, Paul makes it clear that justification, an act of grace through faith, need not result in a sinful life. And this is where I want to land this preach. This is the big idea. The law, freedom, and the gospel of grace. So everything I've said so far, and also all those brilliant worship songs, and all of the words of those worship songs, and that atmosphere of worship, just keep all that just hold that as we look at this important point. Now, I used to think, up until quite recently actually, that there was a choice. And the choice was between law and grace. And the easiest way to picture this is to imagine a seesaw with, let's say, law on this side, and then over this side, grace. That's the way, that's the way I used to think about it. And the choice was either law or grace. And of course, grace won every time. But somehow it didn't quite sit right with me, that picture. I saw that sometimes Christians use grace as an excuse for unholiness or lawlessness, an excuse to sin. But then something really powerful unlocked it for me. And what I'm going to share with you now is a completely inadequate oversimplification for such a deep theological concept, okay? So you need to really 
um, remember that. This is, this is really, really simple, and it's not the full picture. But it did unlock it for me, and I hope it helps you. So on this image of the seesaw, imagine law on the left-hand side, but this time put freedom on the right-hand side and put grace in the middle. So it's not between law and grace. It's between law and freedom with grace in the form of a cross right in between them. Now, this is a little bit of a better picture of the gospel of grace because grace is holding the law and freedom in balance. Words that we might associate with a law might include good works, purity, moral character, judgment, sin, obedience, rules, regulations, doctrine. So that's over that side. With freedom, we might think about generosity and happiness and acceptance and being carefree and liberty and spirit. And that might be that side. And in the middle, grace might have words like love and mercy and joy and holiness and righteousness and peace and wholeness and unity. If grace and the grace of the cross is removed from the middle of that seesaw, it will tip towards the weight of law. Or if grace is corrupted, the seesaw can tip to the other side of freedom. And Timothy Keller, uh, a pastor and a Bible teacher, says there are two errors. The error of legalism and the error of antinomianism. Now, when I was practicing for this preach, I felt a little bit like Nemo. Have you watched Finding Nemo when his dad says, where do we live? We live in an anemone. We live in an anemone. And antinomianism can be a little bit like that. But I practiced it and practiced it. I'm getting it trips off my tongue now. Um, but let's look at these two errors. Legalism. When grace is removed and the seesaw tips under the weight of the law, legalism says that we have to earn God's love. It says, if we obey God's law and do lots of good works, then we are righteous. And the interesting thing about legalism is it quickly puts God in our debt. Because along with our good works comes our expectations and our rights. And we believe that God should do good things for us because we're doing good things for him. And the word freedom now is replaced with other words. It's replaced with things like condemnation, harshness, jealousy, guilt, shame. And we become, or we try and make others, a slave to the law. And in Galatians 1 verse 7, Paul calls this error, he calls this a perverted gospel that's no gospel at all. Alternatively, the other error, if grace is corrupted, we see the seesaw tip the other way, to the unfettered freedom of antinomianism. Sometimes called cheap grace, that's probably easier to call it, isn't it? Cheap grace. Antinomianism says that we can relate to God anyhow we want without obeying any of his words or commands. And it takes the gospel of grace, the gospel that God is my heavenly daddy, my father who loves me, no matter what I do, and that's all true, and it takes that and it corrupts it. Now, words like hedonism or selfishness or immorality, or excess, or unrestrained desire. These words come to mind. And in Galatians 5.19, Paul calls these the acts of the flesh. Okay? 
So these are two errors. Timothy calls them the two enemies of the true gospel. And in church, we usually try and correct one error with the other. Uh, I don't know whether you were like this when you were little. When my younger brother and me ended up arguing and fighting, my mum would come along, or my dad, and they'd say, what's been going on? And I'd say all the things that my brother had done wrong, and he'd been saying all the things that I'd done wrong. And my mum used to say, now, William, two wrongs don't make a... Absolutely. Two wrongs don't make a right. Or as Bill Johnson says, you can't correct one error by swinging to another error. So only when the grace of the cross, the true gospel, is at the very centre, will those two errors be healed and things will be in balance. And you might say to me, hang on, Will, the scriptures say that I'm no longer under the law, I'm under grace. Absolutely true. Fine. Grace requires more from your moral character than the law ever did. In Matthew 5, Jesus said he hadn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. He also said our righteousness had to surpass that of the Pharisees. He said things like, the law says, don't commit adultery, but I say, even if you look at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery, or if you call your brother an idiot, you've committed murder. Grace, holding the law and freedom in tension, can be seen in the parables and the stories in the Bible, things like the woman caught in adultery. Jesus says, after all the Pharisees have left, because he said, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. He says, where are your condemners? Neither do I accuse you. Leave and sin no more. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Romans 6.1 says, Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Jesus said, If you obey my commands, you are my disciples. And what were his greatest commands? Love. Love God and love others. And this comes out in Galatians 5.14. The whole of the law, Paul says, is fulfilled by keeping this one command Love your neighbour as yourself. But possibly the best example is Jesus' parable of the two sons. At the start of the parable, one son asks his father for his inheritance and the father gives him the request. This son falls into the error of antinomianism, cheap grace. He leaves the fam family home with unfettered freedom and he takes his inheritance and he squandered it on loose-living hedonism. We see the other son, the elder son, staying in his father's house, working hard, being good, following the rules. But his legalism is seen in his, in his indignance that the father would lavish grace on the wayward son. But what's the father's response to each son? Is it to the wayward son, to swing to legalism? No. Is it to the legalistic son to try and lavish on him lots of freedom? And No, he doesn't do that. The response of the father to each son is to lavish extravagant grace on both of them. To the wayward son who returns and has repented, 
he lavishes his grace. And to the legalistic son, whom he pleads with to join the party, he lavishes grace. The Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The answer to error is not the opposite error, but grace flowing from the cross of Jesus. So that's the big idea of Galatians. The law, freedom, and the gospel of grace. And that brings us to the end of this Galatians trailer. There are some movies we watch, and we watch them as mere entertainment. And there are some when we just end up staying in our seats right the way through the credits because they've really impacted us. Let me ask you, what effect does Galatians have on you? Unfortunately, the false teaching brought to the Galatian churches by the Judaizers has been extremely difficult to root out of the church even today. We must walk a fine line. On the one hand, we don't want to fall into legalism that the Galatians struggled with. But on the other, we can't just live as if anything goes. The Christian's commitment to Christ is based on a free gift of the cross of grace through faith. But as Paul said at the end of Galatians, it also results in a life of walking by the Spirit. Galatians 4, verse 4 to 6. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you an heir. Is the fruit of the spirit evident in your life? Or do you find yourself living according to the flesh? Too often we lose ourselves in the extremes and in a legalistic attempt to earn our salvation or an untethered attitude about our sin. Galatians is an encouragement to pursue a life of holiness, not in the law, not in your own strength, but in the knowledge of God's empowering grace by his Holy Spirit in your life. We will be digging a bit deeper into Galatians in the summer. But for now, as we sit in the cinema of God's sanctuary, how will we be impacted? How will we respond to the gospel of grace? If we could have the band back. 